Prince Thompson stands on a scaffolding, smothering the names of the previous owners with crusty beige paint. The newest buyer is Chase & Webster, a Detroit manufacturing firm that acquired, disacquired, and reacquired the factory seven times last fiscal quarter, just one acquisition shy of the factory record. Thompson is usually conservative in his font selection, but he's painted Chase & Webster in bold block letters so many times that the ampersand has been haunting his dreams. So he closes his eyes, puts his finger to the wind, and waits for the muses to direct him. Beneath Thompson, the workers pass through the security checkpoint in various states of agitation and file through the double doors to the locker rooms. After changing into their company-issued jumpsuits, they will report to the factory floor for the morning pep talk, when Chapman, the manager, will reiterate the pillars of success through a bullhorn in front of a 5,000 square foot American flag. Meanwhile, in the rafters, the factory organist adjusts the stops on his Wurlitzer Opus 2027, preparing for his 8 a.m. performance of J.S. Bach's Jizu Joy of Man's Desiring, which heralds the official beginning of the workday. When the piece is finished, he will report to the custodial supervisor to receive his assignments, and he will mop floors and disinfect urinals until 10.15, when his brief interpretation of Pachelbel's canon signals the workers' one-minute morning break. It's exhausting work, sprinting up the spiral stairs to bash out a few dramatic, machinery-shaking chords, but the organist wouldn't have it any other way. These musical interludes provide the sole pleasure in a life that is otherwise barren, monotonous, and self-desiccating. Outside, a caravan of graffiti-laden semi-trailers disappears into the loading bay, where a team of workers place bets on the physical characteristics and state of origin of the incoming cargo. Due to the permanent flux of the factory's ownership, it is never certain what product the workers are meant to produce, so the truck's contents are always a mystery. Usually they're raw materials, lumber, iron ore, barrels of crude oil, but every now and then the shipments are more exotic. Accordions, shepherd's pie, Latvian circus performers, herds of screaming cattle. The gambling odds are written in chalk on a blackboard next to the safety's terrific poster. Today, cattle are a 200 to 1 long shot. At 7.59, a small army of synchronized second hands make their victory lap, and the factory denizens commence their preparatory rituals. The line workers stretch their torsos and play with their zippers. The supervisors squint at bulleted lists. Chapman paces in front of the American flag, and the organist incessantly checks the clocks, itching to pound the triumphant opening chord on the Wurlitzer manuals. At the entrance, on the scaffolding, Thompson implores divine providence to guide him and dips his brush in a can of white latex semi-gloss, visualizing his next masterpiece in the gloomy haze of smokestack 
ash. The smoke parts, the sun ascends, and the seconds creep toward the dawning of another day in the fluorescent bowels of the factory. seducing his co-workers with R&B song lyrics and inveigling safety inspectors to meet him naked in the decontamination shower. He'd slept with nearly every woman at the factory and had recently been challenging himself by pursuing his male co-workers' wives who he met at company picnics and factory league basketball games. His team was called the Crimson Fury and when he spotted an attractive woman admiring his soft touch in the paint and his non-parel ball handling, he would call for a substitution, take himself out of the game, and invite the woman to his Buick Skylark as her husband obliviously hustled for a rebound. Buddy's latest conquest was a boiler room engineer whom he taught the Argentine tango during his lunch break. For one week, they danced cheek to cheek to the rhythm of dripping pipes, the tango's gentle caresses giving way to unbridled passion in a cocoon of escaping steam. But then, the lessons abruptly stopped, and the engineer practiced her steps alone, waiting for Buddy to materialize and teach her the fall-away promenade, as promised. Eventually, she heard Buddy was doing the foxtrot with a forklift operator, and she hurled her tango shoes into the boiler room furnace, the smell of burning leather causing her eyes to itch and water. When she confronted Buddy on the line, he merely shrugged his shoulders and said, It's just factory love, baby. It's just factory love. As a Lothario, Buddy was unmatched, but as a line worker, he left something to be desired. While his co-workers diligently performed their tasks hunched over the conveyor belt, Buddy drifted into fantasies of HVAC room rendezvous and service elevator trysts, and the only reason he hadn't been fired was that Victor, the man at the adjacent station, selflessly did Buddy's work in addition to his own. Buddy and Victor weren't exactly friends, but they shared an unspoken, symbiotic relationship that proved far more durable than any of Buddy's dalliances with the factory women. How Victor benefited from this alliance was unclear. Buddy never asked, and Victor never told him. On the rare night that Buddy didn't have a date, he joined his Crimson Fury teammates at the lingerie car wash where scantily clad women sprayed pressurized hoses and served spare ribs and buffalo wings to customers in 
their cars. Buddy knew all the lingerie girls' names, both real and assumed, and was personally apprised of new hires by the car wash owner, Fat Jimmy Marino, on the first of each month. There was supposed to be a six-foot-tall redhead named Candy Cane coming in tonight, but the Furies Center was on vacation, the forwards were at the Twins game, and the shooting guard had an AA meeting, so it looked like Buddy would have to go alone, a prospect he didn't relish. There was a car wash regular who always came by himself in a beat-up pinto, rolled down the windows, and blasted smooth jazz as the girls soaked his hood, and Buddy pegged him as a sick pervert who hadn't seen any action since the Eisenhower administration. What would people think if Buddy showed up alone? He was no debaucherous creep. He was just a working man letting off some steam with his pals. He could wait until tomorrow, but he'd been tied in knots all week, imagining that redhead covered in soap suds and couldn't bear the thought of a long, lonesome Friday evening with her hypothetical image slowly tormenting him. He'd been pondering this problem all morning without success, and was venting his frustration by covering the conveyor belt with quality assurance stickers when the solution appeared right in front of him, methodically removing the stickers as they passed by on the line. Hey Victor, said Buddy, wanna go with me to the lingerie car wash tonight? Sure, said Victor, still plucking off the stickers. Pick me up at 8. At 8.15, Buddy arrived at Victor's apartment in the cloisters and honked his horn, and Victor emerged from his front door in a smart, lightweight worsted suit with satin notch lapels and double-reverse pleated pants. Snazzy dresser, thought Buddy. I knew I picked a good man. After a brief jaunt down the interstate, Buddy pulled into the car wash, and Fat Jimmy waved him into the private suite, where three girls in stretch lace teddies and matching garters waited with lamb's wool wash mitts, paint-safe squeegees, and automotive shampoo foam guns. Buddy identified the girls as Valuria, Moxie, and Amber Jade, and tried to point them out to Victor, but the windshield was bombarded with thick suds that blanketed the outside world like an impenetrable blizzard, and Victor switched on the interior lights to browse an Ohio road map, scavenged from beneath his seat. Eventually, the girls squeegeed off the foam and suggestively writhed on the hood of the car, but Victor paid no attention, instead burying his head in a map of Greater Akron. Buddy tried to recline his chair and enjoy himself, but he was distracted by Victor's brazen disinterest and kept nervously adjusting his seat controls, pitching and sliding and tilting as the girls fondled each other with their wash mitts. What's the deal, man? said Buddy. You're missing the show. Uh, it's not my thing, said Victor. What do you mean, said Buddy? It's everybody's thing. Well... It's not mine, said Victor. The six-foot-tall redhead arrived with an order of baby-back ribs and fried cheese curds, but Buddy was too frazzled for seduction. He merely accepted the food and waved her away. Victor announced he was vegan, so Buddy attacked the meal by himself, 
popping cheese curds with jittery hands and smothering his chin with barbecue sauce as Victor thumbed through the road atlas, entranced by the infrastructure of Ohio. When the wash was finished, Buddy hastily paid his check and peeled out of the private suite, trailing burnt rubber and impulsively blaring his horn at outgoing traffic. I need a drink, he said. An excellent idea, said Victor. Buddy stopped at his safe way and bought a 12-pack of Chucky Charles malt liquor, and he and Victor downed can after can in the parked Skylark until the back seat was littered with crumpled aluminum. Victor had a high tolerance, but Buddy was obviously affected, slurring his speech and knocking over his drink as he futilely fumbled with the air conditioner settings. He turned the radio on by accident, and Bob Seeger's Like a Rock poured out of the speakers, causing Victor to wrinkle his nose in disgust. Do you mind if I change the station? asked Victor. Sure thing, said Buddy. Victor played with the dial, scanning past arena rock and static and radio-friendly reggaeton until he landed on 105.1, where the second verse of Steely Dan's Asia warmly greeted him. Here we go, said Victor. Smooth 105. Victor closed his eyes and swayed to the music, and Buddy tried to tap along, but quickly lost the beat. Say, this is wild stuff, said Buddy. Just wait, said Victor. It gets better. The rhythm became steady and insistent, and there was an electric guitar solo that rose and fell in snaking lines, filling the skylark with a cascade of slender sound. Victor adjusted the tone control to get the bass and treble just right, and Buddy sank into his seat, mesmerized by the elliptical noises flooding his buzzing ears. After achieving the perfect setting, Victor retrieved the last Chucky Charles, popped the top, and handed it to Buddy, who spilled half the contents on his shirt before taking a long, lusty swig. Hey Victor, said Buddy, why are you so nice to me? Why you always do my work? Don't worry about it, said Victor. You can pay me back later. Victor reached over Buddy's chest and turned off the interior lights, and the car succumbed to darkness and the warm, insistent throbbing of the blossoming alcohol blur. Buddy felt the prickle of hot breath on his neck, then his ears, and someone softly, delicately whispered, Shh, shh, it's just factory love, factory love factory love. The music wrapped around Buddy in a blanketing embrace, and there was a distant saxophone on a bed of thundering tribal tom-toms, and then there was nothing, nothing but the throbbing and the warmth of the night.
Asha worked in the factory offices in the numbers department where paper machines spit endless integer printouts that fell to the floor in serpentine folds, covering the office like mammoth tapeworms. Asha and her co-workers frantically typed the data into computer spreadsheets, even though they had no idea what the numbers represented. A sign in the coffee room merely said, Everything you do is important. Asha's boss was an avid golfer who practiced his short game inside the office, and whenever he yelled four, his staff would drop beneath their desks into fetal positions to avoid the imminent chip shot, Karomin, off the walls. Earlier in the day, Asha's paper machine malfunctioned, printing strange, incoherent symbols, and the boss arrived with his pitching wedge and a waifish secretary dragging his leather golf bag. Hmm, imaginary numbers, he said, frowning at the printouts. We'll have to call our best man. He then asked for his nine iron, took a practice swing, and leisurely strolled to his office, his secretary stoically struggling behind. Once the coast was clear, Asha chatted with her virtual boyfriend, sending instant messages with rapid, dexterous keystrokes. The virtual boyfriend was a beta release, and most of his conversation consisted of the words fatal syntax error, but even so, he was far superior to any actual man Asha had ever met. On Valentine's Day, he sent her e-flowers, on her birthday, he baked her an e-cake, and on Arbor Day, he planted an e-sycamore in a wiki forest as a symbol of their blossoming love. He was programmed to share her interests in graphic novels, foreign cinema, and late 70s Elvis Costello, and would respond to her lengthy critiques of Fellini films by saying, That is quite interesting. Please tell me more. Meanwhile, the office's real men had long been trying to get into Asha's pants with postures of brooding machismo and loud discussions of their Jägermeister tolerance, but they only succeeded in deepening Asha's contempt for the male gender. She used to eat alone in an unfinished subfloor and drink her coffee in the supply room, but her boss informed her that her hermetism was affecting company morale and ordered a mandatory increase in her social activity. He scotch-taped an inspirational poster to her cubicle that said, We're all in this together, and now Asha stirred her half and half with everybody else, mentally calculating the number of minutes until she could go home and stab her punching bag with a carving fork. Thanks to the broken paper machine, Asha had an hour of uninterrupted alone time with her virtual boyfriend until Clancy, one of her co-workers, stopped by her cubicle with a no-fat-chicks coffee mug and asked what she was up to. She feverishly eliminated all the pop-up windows on her computer desktop and swiveled around in her chair, beads of sweat pouring down her face. Nothing, she said, hyperventilating. Working hardly, hard working, working hardly. Great, he said. Say, the office hula is coming up soon, and I was gonna go with the receptionist, but then I thought, man, that Asha's real foxy. Maybe I'll ask her first. So, what do you say? 
you want to go? I'm an excellent hula dancer, both on and off the floor. That's okay, said Asha. I'm busy that night. I'm sure you'll have a wonderful time with the receptionist. You got a boyfriend or something, said Clancy, dejectedly. I thought for sure you were single. I got something, said Asha. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have some work to do. Asha pretended to type the nonsensical symbols on her computer printouts with zealous earnestness, and Clancy shuffled out of her cubicle, muttering beneath his breath. The virtual boyfriend reappeared, and Asha cathartically pounded at her keyboard. Men are such jerks, she typed. Why do they all think I'm a desperate nympho slut? There was a brief pause, and then a flashing pop-up window appeared on her screen. You've received an e-hug, it said in flowery italics. You are a valuable and appreciated human being. At lunchtime, Asha ate with her co-workers in the cafeteria, and Clancy scowled at her from across the table with vengeful, hawkish eyes. He voraciously ingested a foot-long meatball sub and left early, slamming his plastic tray into a tub of soapy water and throwing his silverware like darts into a safety-is-terrific poster. The rest of the staff clucked and whispered, and Asha silently poked at her vegetarian substitute, trying not to cry into her diet, Mr. Pibb. When Asha returned to her cubicle, Clancy was seated at her computer, browsing through the archives of her online correspondence and summoning the staff with strident announcements. Hey, check this out, guys, said Clancy. Asha's got a virtual boyfriend. Asha frantically struggled to gain control of the mouse, but she was too late. Her co-workers had gathered around her desk and were laughing hysterically, eagerly milking this humiliating revelation by calling out questions for Clancy to type. Ask him what his favorite position is, said Brad, who worked at the adjacent cubicle. Ask him if he's into S&M. The staff hooted and hollered, and their laughter became so raucous that no one heard the boss shout, four, and swing his pitching wedge into a pink titleist's sweet spot. The ball arced over the cubicle walls and whizzed past the chanting office workers' heads, smashing into Asha's monitor and replacing her boyfriend with spidery, cracked darkness. The staff retreated from the computer, and Asha regained her seat, throwing her arms around the shattered computer screen and sobbing uncontrollably. The boss retrieved his golf ball from Asha's wastebasket and tapped her on the shoulder, drawing her attention to the poster taped to her cubicle. Buck up, kid, he said. We're all in this, together. The boss left, and Asha was alone, her head buried in her arms as she choked and sputtered, her chest heaving in uneven spasms. She was so enveloped by her own misery that she didn't notice the repairman arrive and tinker with her paper machine. Only when he plugged in the power cord and the machine hummed to life did she lift her head from the desk. He pressed the start button, and indicator lights flashed red and then green as the motors revved up 
in anticipation of their labor. The machine started shaking, and Asha and the repairman silently waited for the virgin printout to see if the numbers were real or imaginary. and a stream of weary workers trade their jumpsuits for street clothes, piling into cars or buses and heading home for their evening's rest. Thompson walks through the parking lot and takes an eyeful of his stylized Art Nouveau lettering before driving off down the interstate, and he wonders how long it will last. A day? A week? His work will always be temporary, fleeting, never to be hung in galleries or museums and admired by the beau monde for century after century. His art is self-destructing. His legacy is smothered in beige. Inside, the organist lingers in the rafters and plays ghost notes on the silent keys imagining the full strength of an orchestra reverberating off the factory walls as he closes his eyes and drifts into fantasy. His co-workers don't understand his music. They complain about the fugues and request John Mellencamp and Earth, Wind, and Fire. But one day, he'll find someone who appreciates him. In his dreams, she's as beautiful as a Bach prelude, listening rapturously to his impeccable counterpoint as he caresses the Wurlitzer with his agile, expert fingers. And when the day is done, she joins him in the rafters on the wooden bench, and she plays the left hand as he plays the right. She's out there, somewhere, and so he remains in the rafters, practicing, preparing for her arrival. The night crew wanders in, and the faces are replaced, but the work is the same. Men and women hunched over the lines, squinting at the half-formed objects slowly gliding by. Inside the windowless hull of the factory, there is no day or night, just permanent fluorescence, and if one were to live inside, there would be no time except the synchronized second hands tick-tick-ticking toward the future with systematic relentlessness. But outside, there is a world, 
and when the organist finally leaves the shadows of the factory hallways, he is greeted by a sky of shimmering stars that he almost forgot existed. It is easy to forget when repetition devours the human mind until dreams are nothing but cycling conveyor belts and endless antiseptic floors. But there it is, the sky, and the organist marvels at its beauty as he walks to the bus station, wondering if the same stars shine for his absent soulmate, his lovely left hand, somewhere beyond the concrete walls of the factory. You are the light You are the light You are the light